we need all types of vet practice too. We need the general practices. We need specialty surgeons and emergency clinics and all of those things. And neurotypical brains, right? We need all of it. We so do. I, I haven't done any procedures or surgeries since I started this practice and I thought I would miss it and I don't at all. Um, so <laughs> I'm so proud. I'm always happy to refer to my colleagues that are doing surgeries and doing dentals and you know they have x-ray machines. They have all these tools to complement what we're doing and vice versa. And it feels also really nice to collaborate in that way. You know, I'm doing this this way so that they can give those cases to me so that they can practice the way that they want to practice. So it's mutually beneficial. Richard Branson, Michael Phelps, Justin Timberlake, James Carville. Wait a minute. Where are the women? Greta Gerwig, Lisa Ling, Audra McDonald, Simone Biles. That sounds like a list of highly successful titans in a variety of industries. They all have ADHD, but you don't hear much about that now, do you? You know what else you don't hear about? Are the 43% of people with ADHD who are in excellent mental health. Why aren't we talking about them and what they're doing right? I'm your host, Tracy Atsuka, and that's exactly what we do here. I'm a lawyer, not a doctor, a lifelong student, and now the author of my new book, ADHD for Smartass Women. I'm also a certified ADHD coach and the creator of Your ADHD Brain is A-OK, a patented system that helps ADHD women just like you get unstuck and fall in love with their brilliant brains. Here, we embrace our too muchness and we focus on our strengths. My guests and I credit our ADHD for some of our greatest gifts. And to those who still think they're too much, too impulsive, too scattered, too disorganized, I say no one ever made a difference by being too little. Hello, friends. How are you? I am your host, Tracy Otsuka. Thank you so much for joining me here for ADHD for Smartass Women. You know, it has been completely nutso over here in only the best way. We heard that we sold 10,000 books in the first three weeks, and I've been told that that's pretty darn good. A friend and fellow author just told me that less than 1% of all books that are published reach 10,000 sales in their lifetime, or maybe it was in the first year. I can't remember. So that puts us in the, I don't know, 0.2%. So for all of you that purchased the book, thank you so much. For all of you that supported the book, members of my book team, thank you so much. And for those of you who have not read the book yet, you can go to ADHDforsmartwomen.com forward slash book, or you can just go to ADHDforsmartwomen.com. And if you've read the book, please, please, please go to Amazon and Goodreads if you feel like you can do both. Amazon is the most important. Please write a review of the book. I'm not going to ask you to give it five stars. I'm going to ask you to say what you really thought about the book, but it really helps us to get past that 100 review threshold. Again, I've been told that's all about the algorithms at Amazon. So if you've been meaning to write your review, now would be 
a wonderful time. Okay, so what else can I tell you? Well, um, ADHD for Smartass Women was named to another Book Riot list. This time, it was top 25 of the best self-improvement books to read in 2024. And what's up, Tulsa? I want to shout out Magic City Books and Best for Books for promoting ADHD for Smartass Women. We made Best of Books Oklahoma bestsellers list for nonfiction, and we clocked above Matthew Perry, Rachel Maddow, and Liz Cheney's books. So I was very pleased to hear that. And last weekend, Magic City Books posted that they have just restocked our book. And then they told me that it's a huge hit in Tulsa. So I've never been to Tulsa, but now I really want to go. Best of all, however, I had my first live book event in Silicon Valley last Thursday. And I don't think I've ever had this much fun. Don't tell my husband. There were women who flew out from D.C. and from Boston and from the Midwest. And I was just incredulous about it all. It was so fun. And honestly, what I realized is that if I could do live events all day, every day, just meeting all of you for the first time, hearing your stories. Yeah, that's what I would do forever. My poor publicist, Jill, she started calling herself the bouncer because at the end she had to literally come sit next to me. So I'd sign the books and move the line along so that we could get to the Q&A. And I, I guess my problem is I just wanted to sit and talk to everyone for hours, right? And unfortunately, we didn't have many hours. So in any case, if you want to join me, meet me in real life, I want to meet you in real life. I think there are a few tickets left for our Los Angeles event and a few more for our San Diego event. They are both in February. I would love to meet you in real life. And you can go to ADHDforsmartwomen.com forward slash happy women dinners to get more information. You know that my purpose is always to show you who you are and then inspire you to be it. And then the thousands of ADHD women that I've had the privilege of meeting I've never met a one that wasn't truly brilliant at something, not one. So for all of these reasons, I am just delighted to introduce you to Dr. Ashley Portman. Dr. Ashley Portman is a certified hospice and palliative care veterinarian with a passion for helping ill and aging animals. She's the owner of Home Together Veterinary Services in Gunnison, Colorado, a semi-rural mountain community on the western slope. Ashley grew up in Texas and quickly escaped to Colorado for college. She attended vet school at the University of Tennessee, graduating with her doctorate in 2010. She practiced small animal medicine in Denver and Oregon and finally settled back in Colorado with her husband and pets. In early 2018, after eight years of small animal general practice, Ashley decided to focus on in-home care for senior pets and their people. When not wearing her veterinarian veterinary hat. You will find Ashley enjoying all the outdoor activities that the Gunnison Valley, Valley has to offer, primarily mountain biking, hiking, downhill skiing, and Nordic skiing. She enjoys yoga, Pilates, improv, baking, and hanging out with her husband. Her animal inspirations are her six crazy pets. Yep, six of them. Dogs Twinkie and Daisy May and cats Walter, Marvin, Jolene, and Millhouse. Ashley, did I get all of that right? You did. Yes. Thank you. Welcome. Welcome. Okay. So I got to start out. I know this is not what I normally start out with, but what is it about all of my guests as of late who are into improv? 
So I'm starting to see this connection between ADHD and improv. And I'm wondering when you're part of that, are you actually with many of your peers, many, you know, ADHD brains? It's so interesting you say that. I, I heard that from the last, I don't know, it's been a couple of recent guests that you had on. Mm-hmm. Um, I think ADHD and improv go so well together. We could probably talk like for a whole segment on that too, but it is such a thing. And I think it, I think our brains are just really great at it. We have so many ideas all of the time. And mm-hmm. if you can just like, you know, and things change all the time and we do well with that. So I think it's just a perfect combo. So I am curious, when you do improv, are you actually going somewhere with a bunch of people that are doing it or are you online or how do you do improv? So I have done it um, through, uh, I actually have a great friend who's an actor and who's a fabulous improv teacher um, and she's done a bunch of workshops. Some Mm. have been um, through the college here. So like a 10 week course or we do improv once a week with other people type of thing. And other ones have just been shorter courses or just like a one night event. And it's not the performative type of improv, like whose line is it anyway, right? Like the show that you think of. (laughs) Um, It is more of a learning improv skills um, and playing games and having fun and, you know, bouncing off of all the other people. Um, Mm. But it's really, it's really something. I think everybody should try it at some point. It's really cool to be able to stay in your head, but get out of your head at the same time. Um, and and it's really neat to do it with other people because then you're getting so much input and fodder and so much fun from all of the ideas of all the other people around you. And it's so collaborative. It's, it's fabulous. So I'm curious, is it a great place for us to meet our people? The people that you are around that are also doing this, do you find that they have these creative, more ADHD kind of traits? I think so. I absolutely do. I have to, I should ask my friend about this because she's taught so many improv workshops and has, you know, um, is an actor and is around a lot of neurodivergent people. So um, I bet she would say yes, though, too. But that's what I've found. Sounds like it. Definitely. So um, I always want to start with your ADHD diagnoses first, even though I didn't do that just now. So Ashley, I would love to know what led to your diagnosis. So I was diagnosed later in life, not as late as some other folks, but um, I think I was 37 or 38, something like that. I actually came to the diagnosis um, because I was seeking treatment um, and therapy for depression. Um, So I had gotten into this kind of dark funk place um, that I hadn't been to in quite that way before. And I sought um, help for that, which was fabulous. Um, And I'm so glad we have the resources for that. And part of that was my fabulous therapist, um, who I still work with today, um, asked me if I want, if I was interested in any sort of pharmaceutical bridge to help me, you know, get out of the depression. And so I said, yes, please. I feel like I need, you know, all the help I can get right now. That led me to this wonderful nurse practitioner in psychiatry. Somehow here in our tiny town of like 7,000 people, she was here. And she actually, we started talking about things, treating my depression. And the more we talked, she said, have you ever considered ADHD? And I was like, well, that's interesting because a lot of people in my family have ADHD, but it looked so different for them. I sound Mm -hmm. like a broken record. So many of your guests have said this too, but... So it looks so different for them that I hadn't really considered that that may be part of this. 
And this particular practitioner actually is a very high achieving female medical professional with ADHD as well. So I think she has a special, you know, ability to, to recognize it. Uh, but so, that is kind of a roundabout way of, of getting to it. Yeah. And I love hearing that. It wasn't someone else in your family getting diagnosed like a child. It was actually you got great care from this nurse practitioner. I did. Who, yeah. Who she, knew ADHD. So I, I love to hear that. And I'm curious, what was it about you? Because you're absolutely right. You do not present. I mean, we've only just met, but just watching you here on video, that would not be my first thought. ADHD, some of my guests, you know, you can just tell because they're just moving all the time and their thoughts are all over the place. You seem very neurotypical in the way you present yourself. Mm -hmm. And so I'm curious, what were the signs that she saw? Was it simply depression? And so she thought, well, if there's depression there and I'm working here with a woman, let's talk about this too, just because they tend to be comorbid. Sure. You know, I don't know her exact thought process, but what it kind of all stemmed from. So once we like drill down to why I was feeling the way I was feeling, you know, ostensibly. So I had already, I had everything that I wanted, you know, on paper, like it looked great. Um, I had started my own practice it was growing. People were telling me how much they appreciated the practice and what we were doing. And, you know, everything on the, on the surface was like so positive. Um, but what it came down to, I think was I was so overwhelmed, um, Mm. with all of the minutia. So I was so far, so deep in the weeds that I couldn't, you know, with all the daily tasks of like not only being a veterinarian, but now owning my own business and doing marketing and doing networking and all of the things and ordering supplies, like a billion, billion things every day. And so I would, I couldn't see the wins anymore. I couldn't see the big picture. I couldn't see, hey, I'm making a difference here and I'm really helping people and their animals. All I could feel at the end of the day was, oh my gosh, I have 58 things I didn't do. And that was translating to, I failed at those 58 things, which equals I'm a piece of, you know what? Um, And so that's kind of where my mind was going. So I think that's kind of what clued her in is she's like, it sounds like you're just overwhelmed with all of these tasks. And so we started talking about that part. And then, then we kind of got to like, you know, okay, well, switching tasks is really hard and prioritizing is super duper hard and initiating all these tasks that I don't care about, but I have to do is really difficult. Um, So I think that's what clued her in. And so what happened then? Yeah. So we started talking about it. She sent me some assessment tools Mm -hmm. and then, you know, assessed me formally. And then it was, I guess, a a year and a half. So I I had been on um, some meds for depression that really helped. It, It really did provide that bridge to give me a little distance you know, to then start working on this new revelation, which was huge. <laughs> so, um, you know, I having this framework has just helped so much get some objectivity to all of this, you know, like instead of feeling, okay, I, you know, these are the things I'm struggling with, instead of going directly to that must mean I am a terrible person or I'm a failure. It's like, nope, it's given me so much more space to understand that it's just a different way of operating in the world. So I'm not failing. I just need to do stuff differently. So that's, that was huge. 
So ultimately, um, did it turn out that the depression was comorbid or was it the ADHD that was causing the depression? So comorbid for me, and we've kind of tried. So with awareness and, you know, kind of, you know, doing a lot of soul searching and a lot of workarounds and stuff around the ADHD, and I actually am medicated for that as well. So we've kind of tried a few different combinations of, you know, okay, now that we know that it's ADHD too, do I need, Mm -hmm. you know, help on the depression side? And not as much, but the answer is still yes. So I think it truly is comorbid. Wonderful. So it definitely being diagnosed, being treated for ADHD has made a big difference on the depression end as well for you. Absolutely. Yes. So I am curious since um, you seem to have that classic pattern of successful ADHD woman where outwardly you can do all the things and it's more of the internal stuff that's going on. So I would love to know what was Ashley like as a child? Was school always super easy for you? So school was always pretty easy. I was one of those nerd kids um, that just loved, was really interested in school. It's interesting because thinking back on it, I think that I don't, I don't know that I had symptoms until like a lot of women that kind of, you know, symptoms start or get worse in puberty. Totally. I don't really remember you know, struggling in um, elementary school or middle school or anything like that until it was really later middle school and high school that I remember things, primarily things like procrastination and, you know, like looking back, it was all interest-based. The things that I would find easy were the things that were super interesting and fun and the things uh-huh. that I would uh, work much harder for to do well were were not as fun for me. So school was always... I wouldn't say easy necessarily, but it was something that I didn't have to, I didn't struggle with as much um, as some other folks. I was lucky when I went to college that I ended up at a college that does school on the block plan, which I don't know if if that's familiar to you or not. No. So the block plan, um, you take one course at a time. So this was all through college. So you take one class at a time. It was... It's like the best for an ADHD brain ever. I think, at least for me, it was so good. <laughs> so even though I was Except a, for what happens, though, if you literally... Like, I'm thinking if I had to take calculus and that was the only class I was taking, would that make mm-hmm. it easier if I hate no, calculus? No, it would be terrible. No. So that's the flip side. <laughs> that's the flip side is I did take a few courses that I thought were going to be interesting and they weren't as interesting and that, and it was it was a major struggle. Like I had to force my, like lock myself in my room, you know, to do, (laughs) to do the work. So, but yeah, looking back, I mean, I think that was, it was so Yeah. That college, did they have, I can't remember what they're called, but those requirements that you have to take, or was it more, okay, you're going to study this for a whole semester, or did you say a whole year? So each class, I didn't tell you yet, each class was three and a half weeks long. So you would take a course for three and a half weeks. So like a Monday through like a Wednesday, three and a half weeks later, then you would have what Uh they call block breaks. So you would have four days off in between, and then you would start a whole new course. That's amazing, actually. It's amazing. Because it's also short, right? So if you hate a class, at least you know, okay, three and a half weeks, it's gone. Did they make you take those, um, you know, the first two years you have to take all the requirements in college? 
or could you take anything you wanted? It was, so there were, you know, depending on, I think there were general education. It's been a, it's been a minute. It's been a while, but I think there were general education requirements. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But they were, I think they were probably fewer just because, you know, depending on your major or your minor, like you still mm-hmm. had to pick a major, pick a minor if you wanted, and then figure out your courses to go within that. So in that sense, it was pretty, pretty much like a normal college structure. Since I did so well in high school, I was able to place out of like, I didn't have to take any math in college, thank God, because that would have been Really? You're a veterinarian and you struggle with math? Well, I, I don't, like the math that I use as a vet, I don't struggle with, but it's not like, you know, calculus or number theory or any of that stuff, like yeah. that's not applicable <laughs> at all to me. So, Yeah. Well, I was lucky enough that I was able to place out of a lot of those gen ed requirements um, through like advanced placement courses in high school. Yeah. Okay. So clearly, at least in high school, school was not a problem. You did very well in school. I did very well in school. Yeah. What about social issues? Were there any challenges there or was that easy for you too? I have to credit my best friend um, in, I met her, I moved from one city to another in middle school and my best friend, Sarah, who's awesome, I hope she listens to this, um, is the most extroverted extrovert you'll ever meet. Well, you guys might be like similar. I don't know. Um, <laughs> but she um, she befriended me in middle school and basically was like my guide through middle school and high school. I think without her, I probably would have struggled a lot more. But we were like attached at the hip and she helped me so much through that. Um, so I kind of had like a built-in friend group because of her. And then I I had, I don't think I struggled a lot socially, just the normal awkward teenager stuff, I would say. But I think Sarah, Sarah was my, my friend angel all throughout. So you enjoyed high school, you enjoyed studying, you enjoyed kind of the whole process. It was a good time in your life. I I don't know if I would say I enjoyed it. I I don't like, you know, high school politics and all of that. Like, I don't know that anybody would want to go back there ever. Um, But once I got to college, I would do college all over again. That was, that was fabulous. That was such a great. What was the name of the college that did the block scheduling? Yep. So I think there's a few others, but the one I went to is called Colorado College. It's in Colorado Springs. And there are other schools. So they've done this for how long? Do you know? I, I don't know if I've done it for the whole time they've been a college, but it's been a long time. So it's not a new a new thing for them. Wow. And and there are other colleges that teach in this manner too. I think there are a couple more in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Huh. I'm going to have to look into that. I have never heard of this. It makes so much sense. And the thing is then we can focus on one thing, right? Absolutely. Rather than you know, this constant, because what we struggle with are the transitions. So if, oh, it just, it makes all the sense in the world. I love hearing about that. Thank you. Yeah. So then you get yourself into vet school. So you must've done really well in college because my understanding is it is, I think I heard or read that it was harder to get into vet school than med school because there are fewer vet schools. Is that true? I think if you're playing by numbers, yes, um, there are there are not that many vet schools. There are more now, which is great um, than when I went, but there aren't that many uh, in the country. So, um, yeah, so vet school. I think this is probably what you're going to ask: is how was vet school? <laughs> so um, that's where 
things got a little dicey. Um, I still did well, but I struggled so much more, I think, because now, especially being in college on that block plan, then I then I, I took a year off and worked, which was great. And then I went to vet school and all of a sudden had so many classes and so many labs and all of the clubs and all of these things all at one time. Oh my gosh, I had the hardest time prioritizing um, with all of those things, needing to read all the materials and study and having tests on different days and different lab requirements, all this stuff that, that just like, I didn't realize it at the time, but now looking back, I realized that was really, really hard. Was it primarily the first year, that adjustment period, or did it go through the whole, is vet school four years? It's four years. So I would say it went through the whole, (laughs) went through the first three and a half or the first two and a half years um, or three years. So you have three years of classroom work primarily, and then you have a full year of being in the clinical rotation. So you're not in the classroom anymore. You're rotating through, you know, ophthalmology and then emergency service and oncology and, you know, equine surgery. Like you do kind of blocks of those two. So two to four weeks at a time on your rotations. Once I got there, that was awesome. I was golden. Like that, it was hard. It was a lot of work, but because I could just do the one rotation again at a time, I was back home. It felt so much better. But the the rigorous academics of having all that stuff at the same time was just, was tough. It was super tough. And what our listeners don't know, but I believe I recalled reading, this is something you've wanted to do since you were a little girl. You True. wanted to be a vet, right? So yeah. you were definitely in your area of interest. I was, for sure. Looking back, it's interesting. Again, I, I something I wish I had known about, you know, earlier, um, certainly during vet school. But looking back, the the courses and the things that I struggled with were kind of the easy stuff. Like the, I remember there was a class in first year vet school, and it was all all you had to do in the class. And everyone was like, "Oh, this is basically like a, the easiest course you're ever going to take in vet school." All we had to do was memorize breeds of dogs and cats and pigs and sheep and cattle and horses. Like you're just memorizing breeds. Oh my gosh. I didn't didn't fail it, but I could have. Like it was so (laughs) not interesting to me. Just memorizing all that stuff was like, what? It's a sheep. um, It's a sheep, right? And and if it's a, there was a saving grace because the person that was teaching that I think realized how kind of boring it was. (laughs) He said He's like, you know what? If you guys don't remember these, it's fine because you can just ask the owners, oh my gosh, this is such a beautiful dog. Remind me again what breed this is. And I do that all the time. But looking back, it's funny. It was like the quote unquote super easy stuff that I probably did the worst on because it just was so uninteresting. All of the complicated physiology and all of that, like super complicated endocrinology stuff is so, so, so interesting. Um, it's really hard, but it it was easier to me than that other stuff. So I can't believe that nobody has invented an app, you know, like the plant app where you can put it on a, a leaf and it'll tell you what kind of plant. So, you know, yeah. the different sheep, like we have the different sheep, not sheep. We have um, a lot of sheep around. I live in the country and, you know, the little black face sheep and then the little French sheep and like they all look a little bit different, but does it really matter what the name is? Like you said, 
I, does it matter? This is interesting. So certain, let's say, what do you call them? Not variety of sheep, but certain breeds. They're breeds oh, too. Certain this. breeds of sheep. This is a stupid question because I know with certain breeds of dogs, they're more predisposed to certain ailments. Yeah. So I guess it does. It is important yeah. that you know, right? I mean, yes, it is important that you know, but, and I think that you learn that going through, you know, because when you're learning mm -hmm. about disease processes, exactly what you just said, you know, there's often a, a certain breed of whatever animal you're talking about that's predisposed. So you, you get that going through a lot. Mm -hmm. Um, so that rote memorization of things just, I think that, I think you could just skip that. That's just my opinion, but <laughs> I think you'll, you get, you get that elsewhere. But somebody should make an app. That's a great idea. Yeah, but I guess it would have to be all animals. You can't just have a sheep app. I guess you could yeah. have a dog app. Maybe there is a dog app. Yeah. Well, I wonder about, there's like Google Lens, you know, that you mm -hmm. can, um, I, I bet that would identify things for you. That yeah. might do it. And, and that'll work for anything, right? Mm -hmm. I remember yeah. using it. Oh, I used it for, I found this plant. It was a grass that I loved. I took photos of it and I couldn't figure out, I used all those apps. It couldn't figure it out, but Google Lens figured out what it, what it was. Yeah. So, so I am curious if you've always felt different than others, like, has there always been something in the back of your head that, you know, I'm just different than the average bear? I don't know how different. I think I've always been pretty introspective, I guess. Mm -hmm. Going back to the presenting neurotypically, I think I, I am much more like inattentive um, ADHD than hyperactive ADHD, uh -huh. but I think I've always had a lot of that sort of self-awareness, I guess. And I don't know that I've always, that I felt like a, an outsider necessarily or mm -hmm. felt that different. Um, I think I've just always felt like I was a little bit more inside of myself, a little bit more introspective. Yeah. And took a lot longer to commit to things. And that may be just be the introvert part of me too. <laughs> but um, I would say that that's probably how I how I felt. Okay. So you are not the impulsive sort who just kind of jumps in. You think things through. Um, you're pra are you practical? I think I'm pretty practical. I, I dream a lot, but um, I was actually, my therapist and I were talking about this the other day. I think that probably for a lot of people with ADHD, but for me in particular, I have like, I do have impulsivity. I have all these ideas that I want to do all of the time, but then I have a pretty healthy slash not healthy dose of perfectionism and I, they kind of balance each other out. <laughs> so if I want to jump into something, but I'm not sure I can do it well, that usually kind of stops me, which I think coming back to, that's why improv is so freeing and so awesome actually is because it kind of, it's a safe place for you to practice letting your impulses out um, because they're often really great. Um, you don't have that. You can get away from that perfectionism, you know, meter or that perfectionism hall monitor that's like, no, don't do it. Um, and you just go for it. Um, so yeah. it's, it's pretty, it's pretty cool. You know, I always say that, well, first of all, you know, anxiety, OCD, ADHD, autism, they're all, they're all on a spectrum, right? So what I have discovered is some of the most successful women with ADHD that I've met don't just have ADHD. There might be some anxiety or there might be some OCD. And that is what kind of keeps us from letting things go off the rails with our ADHD. It kind of keeps us in check and 
you've verified that yet again. Hey, I've got some fantastic news to share. Jill Daniel has selected our book, ADHD for Smartass Women, for an exclusive virtual book club and workshop event. I'm really excited to be asked to lead you through this unique adventure. And it's a special opportunity, right, for us to connect, for you to learn all about your ADHD brain and how it works and start to really fall in love with it. So if you've been thinking you want to read ADHD for Smartass Women, but you struggle to finish a book, so you want some positive accountability, or you see the value in being part of an amazing community of other women just like you, I can't think of a better opportunity. You know, many of you have been asking me to do an evening event because everything I do is always during the workday. Hello, ADHD brain. Well, I listened and I'm finally doing it and it's this book club event. So it's a three session event that begins on Wednesday, February 21st. And as I said, it's gonna be led by Jill Daniels and her team. I'll be there to introduce the book. And then I'll be there for a full discussion and comprehensive Q&A where I will, of course, answer all of your questions. So this book club is about creating a space where we spark that positive energy, we fuel our dopamine, and we use this knowledge to transform our lives. It's more than just a discussion, right? It's a chance to discover and embrace your strengths, get inspired by other women that are just like you and make meaningful changes in your life. It's about being part of a community that truly understands and supports you. So let's embrace our ADHD brains and unlock our potential together. If you're in for this exciting event, go to spyhappy.me forward slash book club. Spaces are limited. limited. Nico, I'm going to redo that part. Spaces are limited, and this is an opportunity you won't want to miss. So I am curious, what has changed for you since you were diagnosed? And exactly how long ago were you diagnosed? I think it's been two and a half or three years, something like that. Mm -hmm. So a couple of years. And you said you you tried ADHD medication and it's actually worked for you, correct? Mm-hmm, it has. Yep. Has it really worked? Is it something that you only take when, I don't know, you have to do the things you really dislike doing? Or is it something that you take on a daily basis? So I do take mine daily. I kind of, I played around with it a little. I started just taking it when I would have like my my least favorite days of being a veterinarian are our office days, like the administrative days. <laughs> because I'm not seeing patients. I'm not connecting with people, right? So I used to just take my medication on those days um, just because Mm -hmm. I really needed to get stuff done and it was not interesting and I hated it. Um, it, But then I found that daily, taking it daily just helps with kind of forward momentum, so to speak, and helps me be able to switch gears a little bit better. So if we're in appointments, but then we have to go back to the office and do X, Y, Z, you know, then I can do that a bit more easily with meds. Ah, and can I ask what you take? Yes, I take Adderall. Okay. And were you one of the lucky people where that was the first medication you tried and it just clicked in and worked or did you have to do a trial? Well, it has worked, but the dosing has been kind of what we've played with um, Mm -hmm. and also interactions with 
you know, things for depression and stuff like that have been a little bit, um, just a little tricky, but uh, there's a, what's really nice is we have so many options. And I, if you have, I have had of the good fortune of having some good providers that have been able to help me through that. So we're in a really good spot right now. Wonderful. Wonderful. So you decided you were in general vet practice or was it your own practice or was it, um, were, nope. were you working for, why don't you tell us the story, yeah. how you went from general practice to a mobile hospice practice? Sure. So, um, so yes, I graduated and then went into, and general practice um, is basically just like your, your family vet, right? So it's the clinic that you go to for everything from, you know, vaccinations and, you know, dental procedures. You can also go there for if you're having an emergency, if your animal's really ill. So it's sort of this, so they call it general practice because you do a little bit of everything. So I was in general practice and we we moved around a few times for my husband's school and I didn't feel like I had a great fit for some other practices. So I changed around practices quite a bit. I think always kind of searching for like a better fit. So can I ask you, it sounded like that fourth year of vet school, you really loved it. Mm-hmm. And you were out there, right? And you were actually doing the work. So then when you became a vet and we're actually out there in the world doing the, you know, doing, I'm assuming this is what you thought vets do. Did you love it? Or are you saying that there was always this, nah, this just isn't the right fit? It was kind of both. Um, You know, it's really, it's really challenging when you're in, I'm sure it's probably similar for you know, human physicians too, but when you're in vet school, you still have training wheels, right? Like you still have, um, you know, you're not the end all be all clinician. And so you get out mm-hmm. into the world and then you are, and you, you, you know, sometimes you're lucky enough to have good mentors that help you too, but it was always this combination of, man, I really like the medicine. I really like all this problem solving. I like connecting with people, of course, like my animal patients, um, and at the same time, feeling kind of like I felt when I was, you know, seeking treatment later for depression, just so overwhelmed by all of the task switching in all of the minutia of the day. So it, a general practice in vet med is a very chaotic place. <laughs> so you are switching gears Sometimes, like not exaggerating, every two minutes you're doing something different. And while that sounds really cool and exciting, and sometimes it can be, it is absolutely exhausting, I think, for my brain. So having to go in and see appointments and in between appointments, you're you're being pulled away to treat an emergency, and then you're having to be behind on your appointments because of this emergency. And oh, by the way, so it says blood work is back and the owner called and they need to know what the blood work says. And also, can you call in a prescription for this? Yeah. But we're not sure which pharmacy, right? Like there's all these things that are happening. So just it talking like about It sounds like there's not a whole lot of structure. There's, you just kind of show up and you just kind of not, take off. <laughs> you, you know what? Everybody tries and it's, it's a big thing in veterinary medicine right now to try and make it less chaotic because I think for everyone, even if you don't have ADHD, it's just a lot. It sounds like. And so I would just get, you know, I would get to the end of the day and feel like, whoa, number one, I'm wiped out. Did I pee? I'm not sure. Did I drink any water? I don't know. <laughs> like, Did I have, 
definitely did not have lunch. Like that, you know, that was pretty common. But the more than that, it was that same feeling of even if I did good work during the day, there was still so much that I felt like I was failing at just because of all of the little things that I couldn't get to during the day. And then I would have this list of tasks, you know, at the end of the day and a list of people to call. And I just never felt great. Like I would have moments where I felt great and I felt like, oh, this is what it's all about. But the the majority of it was, was the overwhelm. So that was tricky. And I think that's part of the reason I kept switching practices to try and find you know, maybe I'll go to a practice that has a smaller caseload, or maybe I'll go to a practice that structures things differently. And it would, it would work for a while, I think, because it was new, you know, and it was a new setup and new people and new systems to learn. And that was really exciting. And then I would get, I would get in six months or a year, a year and a half and start feeling the same way again. So it was kind of just this cycle that I went through. Was there any part of it that was around the pressure and perfectionism and, you know, just being afraid that you're going to screw up. Absolutely. Anxiety. Anxiety would, yeah, be part of that too, right? Anxiety. So, so that is something that is, is very common to you, especially new graduates out of veterinary school. So there's a lot of, there's a lot of focus now, which is wonderful on helping vets not be, (laughs) No, I'm not going to say not be perfectionist because we pretty much all are. It kind of breeds for that. Yeah. But trying to separate yourself from those outcomes that maybe you don't feel are ideal. There's there's actually a really exciting thing. Um, it's kind of a new paradigm coming to vet med. It's called spectrum of care thinking, which is different from what we were all taught when I was in vet school as you're thinking about a disease, you're thinking about a problem and they tell you about the standard of care, which means that if you have... X disease, there's one best way to go about diagnosing it, treating it, monitoring it, et cetera. What's hard about that, though, is that you get into the real world and there are a lot of barriers to being able to provide that one perfect standard of care. So that might be, you know, that the pet will not tolerate treatments or or diagnostics. That happens. (laughs) That might be that... um, you know, the owners are not able with their schedules or with their um, time resources or with their financial resources to do that Mm -hmm. standard of care. And it might be that you live somewhere where you can't even offer the standard of care. So with that standard of care thinking, you're then set up, it almost sets you up to feel like you're failing because if you're taught this, there's this one way, this one proper standard way of doing it. And if you can't do it, then of course you're going to feel like, okay, I'm not doing this well, right? I'm, I'm not perfect. And so why, what's the point? So I think that's a really common thread throughout a lot of veterinarians and what leads to a lot of mental health issues in the vet field. Um, so spectrum of care is, I love it because it is what it sounds like is instead of one standard of care, it's saying, hey, there are probably 15 or 20 different ways that you can solve this problem and they are all different and equal. And it's such a, to me, it feels so liberating because it allows for so much more grace, you know, on all aspects. It allows for that really creative collaboration with the owners. It allows for some really good other problem solving. And then you're getting to 
a win-win, um, you know, a win-win-win actually for yourself and the patient and the client and not feeling at the end of the day, like I couldn't do the standard of care, therefore I'm not a good vet. So it's a pretty exciting movement, I think, and I really hope it catches on in a big way. You know, it's interesting that you say this because although I think you are the first vet that we've had on the podcast, I will say that I have spoken to so many vets with ADHD who are just completely burned out and ultimately end up leaving the practice. Yeah. And I think from us, you know, on the outside, and I've always had dogs and I think about going to the vet and you're absolutely right. It is always chaotic and it's always people bumping in and out and, you know, someone's being pulled to go do something else. And, but I never, I don't know, that always just seemed exciting and fun to me, but I can imagine if that is your day to day and you are the kind of person which, you know, and that's who I am, who really needs a certain structure that's a little bit more reliable and that's a little bit more predictable. Like I Mm -hmm. love chaos, but chaos every single day, I think would get really old. Yeah, absolutely. It it absolutely does. Um, So, yeah. So, so that was a long answer, but um, that was, that was my experience in general practice. And so basically I was, I was in burnout, like you were just saying that, you know, a a lot of vets get there and Mm -hmm. I would kind of remedy that short term by going to a new practice, right. And starting over and there was some fresh novelty and all of that. But then eventually it just was not, it just wasn't working. I was in a great practice that again, on the surface and on paper was everything I wanted. And I was still in that same mode. So um, I was in Oregon at the time and a colleague of mine um, had a practice that was strictly in-home, primarily in-home euthanasia practice. um, And we would refer to her a lot. And I started talking with her about maybe seeing what that was all about because, you know, euthanasia is one of those things that especially if you're not involved with it, it seems like why would you ever want to do that? That is so sad. (laughs) Um, That's the reaction I get a lot. And while it is sad, it is so beautiful and so fulfilling to like be in a room with this animal and their family and all of the love that you're getting to feel in those appointments is so special. It's hard, it's hard to even describe it. But anyway, so I was talking with her about that and she turned me on to the um, animal hospice organization. They happened to be having a conference in a couple months in Seattle and that was just a couple hours away from me. So I went to that, that was in 2017, and it was this total, I remember calling my husband, I stepped out of the conference and called him and was trying not to cry on the phone because I was so happy that I had found this. It just felt so good, like, oh, there is another way to be a vet. You know, I don't have to leave the profession like so many vets have to do. Um, And it was so, it was such like an aha light bulb I want to hug everyone moment. It was so, it was so nice. So yeah, that's how I ended up kind of looking at hospice. And then my husband got a job back in Colorado where we are now. So I moved here with him and nobody was doing what I'm doing. So I started, I just started doing it. So I started my own practice and, and it's so much, it's so much better to be able to schedule long appointments and really connect with people, you know, and really get that connection and then and to just be able to practice in a bit more holistic way um, instead of having, you know, lots and lots of appointments during the day. Now I have maybe 
four, I see maybe four to eight patients during the day and it feels so much better. That's still and a, that's yeah. a lot. So how many were you seeing in these traditional practices? Let's see. Let me do some calculating. <laughs> it would probably be, you know, I, it depends on the practice. I think some practices, I, I say I would see probably 12 to 15 patients a day um, okay. in, in general practice. And that's a pretty low caseload um, for your traditional vet practice. So a lot of practices will have, you know, 20 20 minute appointments. So you're seeing three patients an hour. And if you're seeing, you know, however many hours you're working, seeing patients, and then you have the emergencies coming in on top of it. And then you have your surgery patients and you're, you know, so it's, it's a lot. <laughs> it's a lot. Yeah. And you know what you're saying really makes sense for the ADHD brain, because what you are allowing yourself to have with this mobile hospice practice is a lot of connection mm -hmm. and you're able to use your empathy and the empathy and the connection kind of go together. So it, it really does make sense that you would be attracted to something like this. And, you know, when you wrote me, you said, I can stay in vet med. I just need to do it differently, mm -hmm. which is yeah, what we do. I think we, it's very common that we go into certain professions and we end up being the outsider because we're doing things differently than the way it's always been done. Yeah. And unfortunately, I've had the misfortune of having to, you know, bring dogs into the vet and have them put down. And it's really just an awful experience. And I know a really good friend of mine had the opposite experience, which is she had a, a veterinarian come to her home. And she said it was the most wonderful experience. It was not negative. It, it was sad, but it was like you said, um, what was the term that you said? It was just so beautiful. Yeah. And so I wish we had that in our area. Totally so uh, I hope you do. <laughs> yeah. I don't, how do you find that? What do you look for? Yeah, you can, you know, Google searching is great. Like you can search for in-home pet euthanasia or, you know, something like okay. that or um, in-home mm -hmm. end-of-life care for dogs, you know, just just doing a Google search is good. Or your local vet clinic might know too. They usually have a, you know, are clued into that. Um, you know, you could always call and, and just see if there's someone that does that. Yeah. No, next time that is definitely what I'm going to do because the last experience ugh, was so sad because it was a little bulldog and he kind of went doggy dementia mm -hmm. um, at nine and he started, you know, he tried to attack my husband, and then he came at me. And so we had to put him down because I was just too worried, you know, with kids in the house and that something was, and he was really aggressive. <laughs> he was only 45 pounds, but, but he was never like that. You know, the previous years, it was just, it started at around nine. And it was so sad because he really did not need to be put down in terms of he was healthy, like physically healthy. Yeah. I was just so afraid of, you know, the damage he could do since he'd already done it twice. And I was in wound care for, I think, three months. So he messed up my oh, foot. Yeah. Um, and I wasn't going to take that risk, but it was so incredibly sad. Yeah. And I really wish that there would have been someone like you <laughs> that we could have called on. Yeah. Um, oh, that's so hard. It was so sad. It was so sad. And so that's why, yeah, I mean, I just... Golden retrievers, like they love everybody. They're always happy. And, and I know that <laughs> yeah. I know other breeds are like that too, but uh, 
Um, so I am wondering, is there any discussion of ADHD in veterinary practice or veterinary medicine as mm-hmm. a profession? Like, are they talking well, about ADHD? Because I would suspect so dogs and animals are nature, right? We are so attracted to nature. It's what, you know, spikes dopamine for us. It makes us feel good. And so I would think that there are probably a lot of veterinarians who are on the, the ADHD spectrum. So I'm curious about that. Mm-hmm. I agree with you. I think they're like looking, having my diagnosis, of course, like a lot of us, I, I think feel you're, you start identifying like, oh, that person totally has ADHD and so does this person. So like, you know, sometimes <laughs> I think about my my colleagues and, you know, people that were in my vet school class. And I, I think there are a lot of us out there we were pretty behind as a profession in talking about it. So I went to, there was one lecture, there was a conference here uh, or in Denver in July that I went to, and there was one lecture on neurodiversity in vet medicine. And that's the first one I've ever seen or ever been aware of. Um, And that was when? This was this past July. So just a couple months ago. Yeah. Yeah, Since ADHD became a really hot topic, right? Everybody's finally starting to think about it. Yeah. I think that there's, I've talked with a lot of my colleagues about it, just, you know, personal colleagues, especially since I was diagnosed and, you know, just kind of trying to spread awareness about it. Um, But I don't think the greater profession is really talking about it yet. The lecture I went to was, it was really great. It was put on by um, a veterinarian who has ADHD and autism. And she had a panel of, I think, two or three other people in vet med that had neurodiversity too. And it was way too short. We could have had like a whole day about it. We could have a whole conference about it, of course, but um, it was at least, it was really encouraging to see that we're starting a conversation. It's pretty late, but at least we're starting it. um, Because Was it well attended? It was pretty well attended. Yeah. I think they they had it in a, a smaller lecture hall because I think it was so new. They they probably didn't know how many people would be there, but it they, they filled the small lecture hall, which I thought was really great. So yeah, so there's not really we're not there yet. <laughs> I hope to I hope that we get there. Well, and through you know podcasts or through episodes of this podcast, like the one that we're doing right now. Mm-hmm. Again, I am I you know, in my life, I don't know a lot of veterinarians other than the veterinarians. Like I don't have family members or friends that are, you know, are vets, but I'm, I'm actually taken with the number of women because that's who we work with women. I've talked to who have struggled and who've left uh, the veterinarian profession. Yeah. I mean, medicine too, but much less than, than vets. And I, I just, I never thought of the level of chaos every single day until I, pictured myself in, you know, my vet's office and how like the doors keep opening and swinging, you know, in and out. They're just running around most of the time like chickens without heads. So I want to know what it is. So are you so much happier doing it your way? I can't even describe it. Yes. (laughs) So, so much happier. I mean, I think, you know, there's a lot that comes with owning a practice, I never, ever, ever wanted to do it because even before the diagnosis, I kind of recognized how overwhelming that could be. And now I can't imagine doing it another way. Like I just can't. Um, it's, it's so much better. I mean, like we talked about earlier, the connection that we get to have with people. Um, you know, I think that as people with ADHD and they have a, um, two wonderful employees, 
one of whom is neurospicy as well. And she, you know, brings a lot to, to the practice in similar ways that I do. And then I have a second employee who's our anchor. She, we could not do anything without her. Um, she, yeah. <laughs> she does not have ADHD, thank goodness, because she keeps us, the, the other two of us totally in check and, and helps do so many great things. But, you know, having help has, has really helped me tremendously to be able to focus on, you know, being able to be in hyper-focus when I'm with people. So I think that's, that's been a huge thing is, you know, our new patient appointments, we set them up to be like two hours long. So we'll go into somebody's house when we're meeting them for the first time and kind of just get in both, both of us get into hyper-focus and we're really just aware of, okay, what are the challenges here for the pet and for the humans? Cause you're sort of treating, you're treating both. Um, yeah. And helping both um, and being able to be in their homes satisfies our sort of hyper observant brains, I think, too, because, you know, you can see you can get so much information by going to somebody's house and observing, Okay, there's a, you know, a dog that has arthritis or maybe has some spinal challenges and they have these beautiful hardwood floors everywhere in the house, but they're too slippery. Right. So like. What could we do to mitigate that? Do you have an old yoga mat that you could put in the hallway? Do you have a rug? You know, just little things that we can notice when we're in their home and when we're spending so much time that you just can't get um, when they're coming into the clinic. So it's been really, I think, a great way to treat our animal population that is aging and ill and painful and also a great way to engage our brains better. Um, instead of, you know, having to have shorter times and, and switch all over the place all the time. So what is it about you and your ADHD that makes you good at what you do? I think the the empathy piece is big, for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, that's, that's a, I think most vets have that empathy piece, but maybe in, in slightly different servings, I guess, I guess I'll say. I think the creativity and problem solving part of our of my brain and of our, our ADHD brains is so helpful, especially, like I said, when we're in people's homes for a couple hours, you start to get more of a sense of what are the actual nitty gritty problems that we're struggling with. And then you can kind of use that creativity and collaborate with, with them to figure out some pretty innovative things to, mm-hmm. to help the pet. Big picture thinking, I think, is a really good one. So while I hate all of the minutiae of practice, I really like being able to have that big picture and kind of keep hold that space for people so that as we're going along the journey with our animals that are aging or succumbing to an illness, we can keep the goals in mind. We can keep the big picture of, yes, things are changing and there's still a way to to give them good quality of life. Um, I Mm -hmm. think that's really helpful. And I think optimism is probably the last thing that helps. It's easy to get stuck in the sadness sometimes of like a hospice patient, um, but optimism has a place in that. And it really helps to give people some hope that, hey, there are things we might be able to do. And even if we can't do them forever, there's a way that we can make this good up until the very end and we can even make that good. So I think, I think that stuff really, really helps. And harder to do in a busy practice than it is how we practice now. 
Yeah. You know, what I'm struck with is when you go into these homes, basically what you're doing, I'm sure there's so much angst about everything that's going on and, you know, not having the knowledge, not knowing what the options are. And you're basically coming in there and you're leading, which really provides, I'm sure, comfort to not only the patient, but also the owner of the patient. Wait, the patient's owner, right? Yeah. Yeah, you're right. I think, um, I guess it is leadership in that way. I haven't thought of it like that, but you're right. It totally is. And I like it a lot because it can be so much more collaborative than if you're just, you know, than the way that I was practicing before. You just don't have time to do that. And so you are in a prescriptive role primarily, right? Like you're this, uh, here's the here's the way we're going to do it. Here's the way we're going to come back in this many weeks and do these medications and then you're done. Um, and with the way that we're able to do it, thankfully now, it is still those things as a as a guideline, but it's more... What's the big picture goal? What is possible? What what do we want to achieve together? And it just feels, it feels great. Well, I hope that there are vets that are listening. In fact, I there's one vet that in, in particular, I'm going to send this uh, episode to her. I hope they're listening and they're, they're inspired by what it is that you've been able to accomplish. And I just love the fact that, okay, it was done this way, but uh, no, you know, Dr. Ashley Portman doesn't do it that way. She does it her own way, which is this way, right? And it just seems like the level of care is so much better doing it your way. And you're happier doing it your way. Yeah, and it's sustainable. Um, and we need we need all, all types of vet practice too. We need the general practices. We need you know, specialty surgeons and, um, you know, emergency clinics and all of those things. Like if we can traditionally- And neurotypical vet, brains, right? We need all of it. We so do. Like I, I haven't done any procedures or surgeries since I started this practice and I thought I would miss it and I don't at all. Um, so I'm so <laughs> proud. I'm always happy to refer to my colleagues that are doing surgeries and doing dentals and, you know, they have x-ray machines. They have all these tools to complement what we're doing and vice versa. And it feels also really nice to collaborate in that way. You know, I'm doing this this way so that they can, you know, give those cases to me so that they can practice the way that they want to practice. So yeah. it's a mutually beneficial too, which is really nice. So Ashley, where can people find you if they want to know more about you and what you do? So if you want to know more about our practice, our website is hometogethervet.com. We're on Facebook and Instagram. Um, I think Instagram, I had to write it down. Instagram is hometogethervet and Facebook is hometogetherveterinaryservices. So similar, but slightly different. And I'm on social media as well, just um, Ashley Portman on Facebook. And then I think I'm at AB Portman on Instagram. Yeah, that's what we have here. So do you mind if someone has a question of you, can they reach out to you? Absolutely. Yeah. Come, and come what would us. be the best way? Would it be on Instagram under your personal AB Portman? I guess it depends on it, I, any of those ways works. Um, okay. If it's a veterinary question, we do have like a contact us link on our website. We do offer teleconsults too. If anybody out there is listening and you're not sure if you, you know, like if you don't have an in-home provider or if you need, if you have questions about, we can do things like quality of life exams um, via telemedicine, which is really helpful sometimes. Uh -huh. We can't prescribe yeah. or you know, make recommendations without actually physically seeing the pet, but there's a lot of things mm -hmm. that we can discuss just virtually. Ah, so you can provide that leadership that maybe 
someone out there doesn't feel like they're getting. So then they'll know what the possibilities are as far as other resources that maybe they didn't know about. Yeah. And they, they can have things to ask their vet about too. Um, so right. yeah, we, we do a lot of that. Wonderful. Okay. Well, Ashley, thank you so much for spending time with us here today. It's actually been a real delight to just learn more about veterinary medicine and, and you and all of it. Well, thanks for having me, Tracy. This has been super fun. I've listened to maybe not every episode, but pretty close. And this has just been really awesome. So thanks for having me on. Wonderful. Wonderful. So that's what I have for you for this week. If you like this episode with Ashley, please let us know by leaving a review. Our goal is to change the conversation around ADHD, helping as many women as we possibly can learn how their ADHD brains work so that they too may discover their amazing strengths. Do not forget to go pre-order my book at Tracy Oak. No, it's not Tracy Oak. It's ADHDforsmartwomen.com forward slash book. I could really use your help there. And as always, you're listening to ADHD for Smartass Women. Thanks for listening. I'll see you here next week. You've been listening to the ADHD for Smartass Women podcast. I'm your host, Tracy Otsuka. Join us at ADHDforsmartwomen.com, where you can find more information on my new book, ADHD for Smartass Women, and my patented Your ADHD Brain is A-OK system to help you get unstuck and fall in love with your brilliant brain.